This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Your Money on Business Radio. Hello and welcome back. Ken Smith, professor at the Wharton School, and you're listening to your Monday series XM 1 to 32. Uh, for this show, I have a financial planner with me taking your calls about your own situation. So if you want to know what to do with your money, how to save for retirement, uh, paying for your kids uh, to college, really anything about your money, love to answer a question. Now is the time. We're live on Tuesday, so give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. Uh, just like the school name, W H A R T O N. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. With that, let me introduce my next guest, Michael Gary, is a managing member and chief compliance officer with Yardley uh, Wealth Management, Newtown, uh, Newtown, uh, Pennsylvania. Like all our guests on the show, he is uh, fee only. Is also the author of the book, Independent Financial Planning: Your Ultimate Guide to Finding and Choose the Right Financial Planner. Uh, welcome back to the show, uh, uh, Michael. Thanks for having me, Ken. And remind us a little bit about your firm, and if you have a typical client, uh, what's your she like? Sure. So we are, as you said, a fee-only fiduciary financial planning and investment management firm. We're in Newtown, which is about a half, um, 30 minutes north of Philadelphia. And uh, we work with mostly retirees and pre-retirees. Uh, a lot of people have done a good amount of saving, good job of saving, but then when it comes time to, to changing that and turning on income distributions, uh, people get a little nervous, and, and that's when they usually reach out to us. Um, all, all income and net worth um, uh, profiles, you know, so we, yeah. we don't have any specific um, things that would, would push somebody away. Yeah. And again, speaking of uh, Michael Gary, who's uh, with uh, uh, Yardley Wealth Management in Newtown, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, like all our advisors on the show, again, fee only. So give us a call. Love to answer your questions about really anything related to your financial needs. Uh, uh, live on Tuesday, so grab the phone. Give me a call at 1 844 Wharton. That is 1 844 So, uh, 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 Michael, as you know, the, the SECURE Act recently passed. Uh, uh, and sometimes, you know, people are thinking, well, maybe we should uh, – one of the, uh, the things about the SECURE Act is that it pushed out the required minimum distribution date from age 7 and a half to 72. It maybe, you know, improves the opportunity for doing, you know, uh, some Roth conversions if you retired before age 72 or even, you know, maybe doing Roths on the front end if you think the RMDs are not going to be as aggressive uh, or going to hit you as, as, as for longer – uh, as time of your lifetime as they did at 70 and a half. Uh, your, your thoughts about, uh, you know, Roths and, and C- the Secure Act? Yeah, you know, I, I think it really comes down to taking a look at, at what people are paying in tax and see if it makes sense. You know, if somebody's retired and, and hasn't and can hold off on taking Social Security and is not taking a pension and maybe is living off uh, savings and taxable investments, you might not have a lot of income and it might make sense to convert uh, some of their IRAs to Roths, but you really have to take a look at it. You know, w- when I went to law school, uh, the professor I had for income tax really just stressed the idea of paying tax later rather than paying tax earlier. You know, reduce it as much as you can and then push it into the future. Right. So it is hard for me to tell people to convert, but a lot of times it does make sense. If somebody's going to be in the, the 10% bracket or the 12% marginal bracket, 
know, even higher than that. It often does make a lot of sense because if they've saved a lot and have good Social Security, those RMDs and Social Security and and, uh, other things, you know, in their 70s might really push them up into a higher tax bracket. You know, so really do need to look at somebody's situation over the long view. Yeah. And it, it certainly, if given that uh, required minimum distribution, so kicking at age 72, you know, there's usually now a longer gap between when people retire and at age 72 and then they're going to be in low tax years. It probably does make sense uh, for people to do some conversions and pay the tax during the low bracket years than when they hit the higher bracket years with the RNA. Right. So imagine you guys are doing a lot of calculations with that. Again, uh, speaking with Michael Gary, uh, uh, he was the managing member and chief compliance officer. Yardley Wealth Management here in Newtown, uh, Pennsylvania. Love to answer your questions about anything related to your own financial needs here at uh, 1844 Wharton. That's 1844-942-7866. And so certainly another thing about the Secure Act is, you know, the, the stretch IRA kind of went away. Instead, you know, uh, kids who inherit the IRA you know, uh, now face a 10-year required minimum distribution rule. Uh, so, you know, people have been, you know, of course, struggling with that, you know, and saying, is there any way kind of working around that? What can I do? And so, and, and so forth. And you, you have some thoughts. Uh, uh, please, yeah, please, please tell. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, a lot depends on, I think, the difference in age between the parents and their children. Um, you know, so if they and, you know, the, the one thing that that uh, kind of struck me was if people live to their life expectancy, it could be just fine. If people live to the 92 or 94 that we use in our planning software and their kids wind up being in their 60s when they inherit it from them, well, maybe that that's perfect before their own Social Security and their own RMDs and they could take it out over the years before that. Um, sometimes where it, where it might get hard, though, is for younger people inheriting. You know, trusts were set up usually with conduit trusts where the trustee has to push the money out. You know, and, and now with a 10-year period, that some trust might be set up to, to just do it, you know, at the 10th year and, and make it all taxable. I mean, so that needs to be reviewed. You know, hopefully in most trusts, the trustee has the discretion to do it when it, when it makes sense. You know, and some people are looking at accumulation trusts so that, you know, they could keep the money in the in the trust longer and not have it uh, go out further. You know, and so that's a situation where the beneficiary is, is young, like, um, you know, in their teens or 20s or, or even younger. But if somebody is not, uh, if your child isn't an adult uh, when that happens, you know, they, they get to, I think it's, is it 26 that they have to take it out over the 10 years or is it 21 or 18? But anyway, if you have a minor child, they don't have to start the 10-year ball right away. Yeah, yeah, and it, 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 yeah, it starts at age 26. And so, again, speaking with uh, Michael Gary, uh, who is the Chief Compliance Officer, Yardley Wealth Management in Newtown, Pennsylvania. If you've got a question, give us a call here. I love it. Uh, uh, if you answer your questions here at one eight four four Wharton, that's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Again, happy to answer anything related to your own, uh, you know, f- financial needs. And so, Social Security claiming is always, a, you know, a tricky issue. Um, it was more tricky when they had all of these different loopholes and so forth that you know accredited applications and 
file and suspend and all those other tricks that you used to be uh, able to do. It's gotten a little bit more uh, simple over time. Uh, you know, for a lot of people, we just simply say, you know, try to postpone your claiming, uh, even if you retire earlier, as long as possible to age 70. I mean, is that the general advice you're giving people? Or, you know, there are obviously sometimes exceptions with spousal benefits and so forth. Yep, we do our best to try to try to hold people off uh, on taking, and sometimes that's hard. You know, people see that money out there, and, and want to take it. And I think like ninety percent of people uh, take it when they retire, if they're eligible to. I mean, a lot of people in the in the country need it, right? So I mean, that, that obviously we have to be cognizant of that. But if you don't have to take it because you have uh, other investments and other savings, it really does pay to wait. Um, you know, and the, the, the break-even point isn't really that long after after 70, you know, looking at different ways, it could be 76 or 78, you know, and that it could be a benefit that's paid out for a long time. You know, uh, people are living longer and longer and getting that, that lower payment when you're 62 or 64, whenever you turn that on versus the much higher one at 70. You know, it, it, it could be a mistake that you live with for a really long time. Yeah. And we so, really do try to try to stretch that out, make yeah. people wait. Yeah, and, you know, Social Security itself is facing some financial, you know, shortfalls. I mean, how do you, how do you get – do you incorporate, you know, uh, that into your planning analysis in terms of how much people need to save for retirement? I mean, 2035, you know, uh, it's almost 25 percent, you know, uh, a shortfall in, in, in benefit payments at that point. Uh, of course, some people think, well, Congress will fix it like they've done in the past. But, you know, that's one way that they fixed it in the past is they've also changed benefits by, you know, increasing right. retirement age and things like that. How do you guys kind of plan for that kind of uh, policy uncertainty? Yeah, so it really depends on the client in that in that case. And so, the, so there are uh, people who come in uh, just assuming that they're they're not going to get something, and we and we could plug that in the software to say that the benefit will be twenty five percent less or fifty percent less or something like that. And I, I don't I it would be hard for me to imagine such a draconian cut. I definitely could see though some some benefit uh, trimmed, especially for higher earners. Um, you know, and and so. When we take a look at it, really talk to the client, see see what their their thinking is. Then maybe you know, in in you know, some of the different scenarios, uh, show show some sort of a cut. Um, but yeah, it's hard to plan because you don't know. And you know, like the Secure Act, one of the things that's been so hard to plan. It it must be so frustrating for people because the rules around IRAs just change all the time. Yeah. You know, and you you try to make you know, try to to do what you think is the right thing, and then you know they they just change it. And then you have to adapt. Yeah. And, and again, speaking with Michael Gary, is the managing member, chief compliance officer, Yardley Wealth Management. Uh, give us a call if they answer your questions here um, about your own financial plan needs here at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 You can ask us anything about your money and we'll uh, answer those questions for you. I mean, certainly, uh, uh, Michael, the, the standard advice is that you should you know, defer taking income out, out of your 401ks and 
IRAs as kind of long as possible. Uh, and of course, you know, there's the RMDs that kick in at age 72. Uh, but, you know, some people say, no, it's a, it's a more balanced. I mean, you should also be thinking about, you know, uh, having some balance with a taxable brokerage account. And, um, you know, that's maybe where you're holding some of your stocks. And maybe some of those should come out first because those are kind of riskier assets and allows you to kind of de-risk as you go into retirement. Uh, how do you guys approach that? Yeah, it really depends on the on the client and how much balance they have. You know, a lot of people don't have much balance at all. You know, a lot of people just have all of their money in their four hundred one k's and IRAs, and then it, planning gets a little bit harder. But if they have money in a brokerage account, you know, you could figure out what what amounts of taking capital gains versus uh, or taking losses if if that's available or if those are available versus it drawing income from the four hundred one k or the IRA. You know, it really. You know, it's a planning issue. You look at different scenarios. Um, you know, use the, the current tax software and see what makes what makes the most sense. Yeah, and so, so markets obviously going nuts. You know, yeah. uh, <laughs> at, at today, I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, you know over the last couple of days, going from north of uh, Dow Jones, you know, north of twenty nine hundred to now all the way down to twenty seven. Hundred over two thousand points, kind of lost there. I mean, how, getting any calls? People nervous? You know, how how do you uh, you know uh, deal with that uh, when you have these big large losses? What what are your recommendations to people? How to you know deal with that? Sure, I I would say to not change anything, um, and we haven't gotten any calls. Now we do in in part of our education remind people that the market goes up and down every day. And, you know, you're going to have good, bad days, weeks, months, quarters, and years. And over time, it's going to go up a little bit more than it goes down. Uh, a little, And it will go up a little bit more often than it goes down. You know, the excuse du jour right now is the coronavirus. But, you know, after 15 months of uh, really great returns, it's not that surprising that, that it would go down, right? And it just has to be some sort of reason for it to make us all feel like, like there's a reason, not just that it's the vagaries of the stock market. Yeah, and, and it's certainly you know bonds yields have also uh, plummeted quite a bit. You know, as a ten-year yield is approaching kind of historic lows, especially in a, you know after adjusting for inflation. Uh, and so, your thoughts in terms of you know people are going into retirement. One of the reasons why we actually have such a big stock market run up in the last couple of years, as well as you know, ha- such heavy demand for bonds at r- reduced rates is that some of you are going into retirement at this point, uh, very, lots of capital and so forth. But you know, in the old days, they would invest a lot in bonds to get some bond income. That's, you know, that, that's how, how they would afford retirement. How have you guys shifted strategies over, over the last few years as, as you know, bond yields have come way down? Yeah, you know, so we still use investment-grade bonds, um, U.S. and foreign, and, you know, they, they still make up a pretty sizable percentage of, of uh, pre-retiree and retiree allocations. And, yeah, that the dividends from them are, are much lower than they've been historically. Um, but we have them also because of the way they dampen the volatility of a portfolio, and we know that in times of crisis, you know, like, like now, people buy into them. And if somebody needs to take uh, distributions from their account, if there's not cash available, then they, we could uh, sell some of the bond fund. Um, and then, you know, that's what we did in the panic 10 years ago, and that's what we'll do in the future when, when things are down. 
you know, it, it is hard for the portfolio. Like, you know, you have to assume that expected returns uh, in the future will probably be a little bit lower than they've been in the past because of how expensive stocks, bonds, and cash all are. Um, and, you know, you need to, to, to plan around that and, and take that into consideration. Um, but then otherwise, you know, we don't, don't really go into new asset classes, you know, um, private equity and venture capital make me uh, nervous and, and or nauseous. Um, you know, I like buying old-fashioned stock and bond funds, uh, index funds generally, uh, cheaply uh, and tax-efficiently. And then having the right allocation for somebody at, at their stage of life and, and how their risk tolerance is, and then rebalancing to that. Yeah. And again, speaking yeah. of Michael Gary is the uh, managing member and chief compliance officer at Yardley Wealth Management. If you got a question, love the answer right here about your own financial needs. Live on Tuesday, so grab the phone, give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And so, uh, when you think about the you know uh, planning for retirement, I mean, since bonds aren't yielding the income, uh, are you is it withdrawal strategies that is how you're trying to manage uh, retirement income? Is it uh, you still doing a four percent rule? Have you brought that down to three percent? I mean, how how are you guys trying to therefore create you know kind of retirement income? Is it mainly through uh, just withdrawals of uh, since you don't have access as much to the to the bond income, yeah, yeah, it has to be more of a withdrawal strategy. You know, so when people are retired and they're, they're taking distributions, so you know, none of the dividends or capital gains are reinvested. So, so that's a source of cash, and that'll provide some of it. And uh, you know, we we try to get people to not bump too up, uh, too high, close to the four percent rule. You know, uh, you know, obviously there there's some people that that uh, don't have quite as much as they'd like to have, and and they might need to skirt a little bit, skate a little bit closer to that. But generally, you know, we, we tried to, to tamp that down. And one of the sneaky things we do, Kent, is that 4% rule assumes that people are going to adjust every year based on the cost of living. Yeah. In real life, nobody does that. Nobody says, oh, inflation was 2% last year. So instead of taking uh, $500, I'm going to take $510 from that account. You know, and so over time, you know, their portfolios will be a little bit safer. Um, you know, we just don't do that automatic cost of living adjustment. Now, something you know, after five, ten years, obviously, sometimes people will need an adjustment. But most people, once they get into retirement, they look at it as their paycheck and just make changes based on their RM, how their RMDs change, and whatever Social Security changes. Yeah. So, it, what are the big mistakes that you see happening in retirement as people approach retirement? Obviously, sometimes people are just they haven't saved enough. Um, yep. And obviously, that's that's the real kind of big one. But other mistakes that people are making. So, I think sometimes people think that they need to get a lot more conservative than they should be. You know, they think, okay, well, I'm 60 or 65, I should just have all CDs and, and insured cash not thinking that the money's going to need to last them for 20 or 30 years, and they'd, they'd like to leave it for their kids and their grandkids or, or their charities or whatever. So a lot of times, you know, we'll see people and, and they'll, they'll be in cash when they come in or, or a lot of cash. Um, one, another thing for like pre-retirees don't do is they don't really have a, um, a, their portfolio as a whole. It's a collection of various IRAs or 401ks that haven't been rolled over, cash in different accounts. And it's, it's really not uncommon for us to see people come in 
at, at all different um, income and net worth levels that might have uh, 10, 20 accounts. Uh, we've had more than 20 a couple times. Hmm. Um, and just, and you know, they might not have that much, but it was like, oh, I need to open this account to have the mortgage over here. So I've had a thousand dollars in this account in some place in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania that's had a thousand dollars in it. Or we have a 401k and, and well, when I left, I just stopped rebalancing it. And so who knows what it's invested in. And so it's a, a big part of the planning process is getting people to get everything together and taking a look and see what they have and see if it's still useful for them and, and how everything fits together. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, so yeah. I think people uh, like that as much as anything else, feeling that feeling of being organized. Yeah. And it's, markets are obviously very volatile right now. A lot of people are start to think about alternative investments, gold, commodities, uh, things like that. I mean, I, my, my guess is that you probably don't use a lot of, kind of alternatives in your practice. But, you know, how do you have that conversation with people or just, you know, I think I want to do something different because they, yeah. you know, it's, it, I'm just tired of these market volatility. Yeah, yeah, you, you guessed right for sure. Um, yeah, so, so like, oh, the gold question comes up a lot. I think it must be advertised a lot or something. Um, but we get the questions about gold. And, you know, I try to, to talk to people about how, you know, gold only a couple of years ago finally eclipsed where it was like in 1980. Um, and so it's not really an inflation hedge if it, if it, doesn't keep up with inflation and, and provides uh, uh, speculative returns, if anything. You know, it, it just doesn't just doesn't work like a normal investment. Doesn't do anything for you. Um, you know, obviously people like to speculate on anything, and you could bet on roulette if you want to go to Atlantic City and have a good time doing that. Um, but don't. I wouldn't count on um, gold to to do anything for you. You know, the other commodities, that, the hard thing there is that, you know, commodities, for the most part, get get cheaper over time. Yeah. And so they might be able to provide some diversification, but I don't know if I'd put too much in something that doesn't have any kind of pricing power. Yeah. You know, and so we just talk about that. And I think I think sometimes when, when people see how they how they've actually performed and you, you take a look and, you know, look at a, a gold chart and, and see like long term history. Um, you know, it might make sense. You know, like I said, I think they must they must advertise gold a lot on some channels. Or yeah, something, yeah, we well, can get that a lot. Yeah, it's just it's one of those things that is 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 incredibly tempting for a lot of people. It's been for many years. Warren Buffett has always mm-hmm. you know he scratched his head over the fascination with gold. So again, speaking of Michael Gary, managing member, chief compliance officer, Yardley Wealth Management, Newton, uh, Pennsylvania. Here, give us a call. Love to answer your question live on Tuesdays. So give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let me go to Stephanie calling from New York. How can I help you, Stephanie? Hi, Michael and Ken. Thank you for your help. I love your show, um, and thank you for t- you know kind of calming people down today. <laughs> <laughs> as far as investing goes, I, I, I mean I've been listening a little bit, and I know people talking about you know whether to sell and all that, and whether to buy gold or where to you know, put money. I have a different question. I, I, my fidelity account didn't work today. Wow. Wow. And so, and, and I'm, I, you know, I keep up, I'm worried about, is it, oh, should, with all my investments and I don't have that much, but should I keep some cash? I mean, what, what, what happens? Everything is digital and it scares me. Yeah. 
Yeah. Am I crazy? Have you tried it again? Is it still down? Or is no, it... it's not down. They, they fixed it. But, but okay. you know, this isn't the first time, and it's, it's not just that company, because yeah. I tend to spread my stuff around. Right. Again, I don't have a lot. I spread it around. I think that's probably wise. But what are you telling people? Yeah, and I think you know. I think what's really important here, uh, Michael, is to really distinguish between the custodian and versus your kind of investments. And, um, and I think you know a lot of times people will spread their money across different custodians like Fidelity, Vanguard, and so forth, and thinking that they're getting diversification, but it may not be actually more diversified. So explain that distinction. Sure. So, so you have a custodian, which could be Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, and then you have your, your various investments, and that could be a Fidelity mutual fund or a Schwab mutual fund or a Vanguard fund. And when you buy into the investment, you're invested in that fund, um, but where you have that investment is a custodian. And so a lot of times a Vanguard or Fidelity fund will be at those custodians. But actually, in our practice, we use Schwab and TD Ameritrade, and we have funds. Uh, we've had Vanguard or Fidelity funds there, um, and they're separate and distinct. And um, you know what, what Kent was saying was that you know you can have uh, money at different places, but if it's all in the same fund or type, like you could have the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund at any of those places I just said. Um, Spreading it around those different custodians not really going to make that any safer, I don't think. Um, right. You know, you, you just need to. I, I get what you're saying, and you're not crazy, Stephanie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank it, you. It is always, yeah. I mean, it is always a little bit worrying, and we do have some clients that have have money at both places because they, they don't want to put everything at one, and and that's okay. Um, and I understand that you, you need to, to balance the simplicity of having things in fewer places so you could track them better versus the idea of, you know, being able to access stuff. Now, you know, a, a website being down for a, a day or so, is probably a little distressing, but, but probably not ultimately a, a huge issue. Um, and I don't know how much cash I'd keep on hand. You know, right. because, yeah, yeah. I mean, your house certainly has a higher chance of being robbed. So, in particular, Stephanie, uh, a place like Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, and so forth, it's not like they really have your money per se. In the sense that, um, if something, it, let's take the worst case scenario. Suppose that Fidelity were just themselves going to go to the business. Your money is not um, at risk from Fidelity itself going out of business. There might be some disruption and so forth, but the assets are still invested um, uh, within, the, within the funds. And the funds are just, they're just kind of, Fidelity is just kind of the, the custodian for, for your money. They're, 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 the, they're the funnel uh, behind that. I mean, in the worst case scenario, and you don't have to worry about this with most of our large custodians in the United States, like Fidelity, Vanguard, and Schwab, and so forth, uh, you could actually imagine going with a custodian. They do something nefarious, like when their employee steals the money somehow and doesn't really invest in, and commits fraud and, you know, uh, it, it changes, you know, the accounting to cover their, their tracks. Uh, and in that case, a lot of these custodians, uh, they in fact have insurance against that. Uh, 
And admittedly, you know, the probability that's so small, it's more of a publicity thing that just like calm right. people down. But it's called SIPC kind of insurance. And it protects usually up to $500,000 per account of that, something nefarious like that, that happening. Um, but typically, again, they're just kind of the, uh, think of them as, you know, you have a choice of sending your package, you know, or, or maybe this is not a, bad, a great analogy now that I think about because I was going to say, your package goes to the same place whether you did it by UPS or uh, US Mail or FedEx, but it's true, they could lose one of those packages along the way. So maybe not the perfect analogy, but the point is once your money is invested, uh, it, 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 even if, if worst case scenario, Fidelity went out of business, uh, your money is still still there. Um, even it, if their website is down, that's day, right. Yeah, I'm good. And, okay. and now just yep. for a day, I mean, even if the worst case scenario, they actually went out of business, there would be disruption. By the way, Vanguard's website goes down um, as well. They usually try to do it like at 2 a.m. They do system upgrades. But I've seen it where it's gone down um, even, you know, during the middle of the day. I mean, sometimes what, what, I wouldn't be surprised what happened at Fidelity. Um, if Fidelity has a lot more active traders than Vanguard. Um, and so there's probably, given the markets today, and Fidelity even does, you know, some uh, a broker-dealer for options and so forth. There's probably a lot of activity on their website today with um, the markets going a little crazy and gotcha. people doing the wrong thing like, you know, <laughs> uh, momentum trading and so forth. And so that probably kind of overwhelmed uh, the systems. But I'm discussing here uh, what happened there. So thanks so much for calling, uh, Stephanie. Really appreciate it. And again, speaking of Michael, Gary here is the member and chief compliance officer, Yardley Wealth Management, Newtown, Pennsylvania. Give me a call here. I'd love to answer a question here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let me go to Jenny calling from Los Angeles. How can I help you, Jenny? Hi, Kent. I'm actually calling on behalf of um, a family member who's around um, in his early to mid 70s. Okay. And he hasn't invested in any financial products before. And he was considering an annuity. Mm. And he is um, cash rich, but... Um, Do you know how much about? No, I don't know the exact amount, but okay. um, he has, I, I would say he's, you know, middle class, upper middle class. Okay. So what's his alternative? Is it just a draw, a draw down cash for, is cash reserves for retirement or to invest in an annuity to try to provide some extra income? Is, is that kind of the trade-off we're, we're thinking about? I think he just wants to have his money work for him. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of um, advised him against annuities. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, is he is he married or uh, uh, single? Uh, give me or some some more facts uh, about him. Is he healthy? You know, uh, all that type of stuff. Yeah, he's relatively healthy. He's eighty percent retired. Um, yeah, he's married, single. Uh, which one? Married. Married, okay. Married. And so they're both living, right now they're living off this cash. I assume that he has, if he's in the mid-70s, he has some Social Security income coming in? He does, and he's leased his business, which is okay. So he has a, providing a bit of money. Oh, okay, so he has a business, but he doesn't want to sell it? He's kind of just getting some cash flow off it? It's a lease-to-own structure. 
Oh, I see. So it basically, uh, he has somebody who's taking it over, and they have some type of you know graduated you know payout structure. So they you know uh, will you know eventually take control of the company or uh, after a, a few years of an earnout relationship. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But, but you don't know any of the numbers here of cash, how much he's getting from business, things like that. No, I don't. Okay. So l- we'll just keep that at the abstract level here. I'm, I'm an economist. We love the abstract. So that's totally fine. But so let's just mainly talk about uh, it's always best to have numbers because in some cases, you know, you might say, I always want to have enough cash for like out of pocket medical expenses. And people really greatly underestimate what out of pocket medical expenses are. Uh, the average couple going into retirement today, even when they're on Medicare, they're going to face about $250,000 in out of pocket medical expenses, that stuff that's not covered by traditional Medicare. Uh, they can reduce that a little bit by going to Medicare Advantage, or but if they have a Medigap policy, it's going to take some of that money as well. And then you have long-term care uh, expenses, uh, things like that. So we always want to have a cash reserve, the, assuming that they have more than that in cash and what to do with the rest of it. There really is two types of annuities. One is called a variable annuity. Those are the ones I hate, and they are great sales jobs. Uh, associated with them, minimum, you know, guarantees in in terms of rate of return. They have all the, the it's behavioral economics and seduction um, in products selling all combined in in the one. But they have lots of hidden fees and so forth. But then there's what's called a fixed annuity uh, that really does provide true insurance value that keeps on paying until you die. And provide that you can get one of those with now a big overhead cost. Um, those could actually have some real value. Those are the kind of annuities that economists tend to like a bit more. So, Michael, I mean, uh, certainly if he's trying to make sure he's not outliving his assets uh, and he's not willing to maybe go into the stock market, sounds like he's pretty risk-averse if he's holding all this uh, cash. Anyway, uh, under what circumstance would you maybe say, you know, maybe you should top up that Social Security, which is annuity, maybe with maybe a joint survival type uh, fixed annuity? Yeah, that might make sense. I was sitting here listening, thinking that, you know, if he hasn't invested in a financial product before, uh, you know, I don't know about uh, dipping my toe into into the waters with an annuity, but, you know, a fixed annuity is probably closest to the types of banking products that he's used in the past, like a cash or a CD. You know, it's different, um, but it's probably the the most similar thing in the investing world to, to what he's used to. So maybe it makes sense to look at, you know, get get a quote from a, a, a financial institution or two to see, you know, what kind of return he'd get, like what what the promise would be based on his age and the age of his of his spouse, um, to see, you know, if 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 he blocks up, you know, x amount of money, what would he get for the rest of uh, either of their lives, and that might make sense to him uh, compared to the, you know. Tenth of a percent you get at a bank, and one and a half percent you get online. Um, you know, it really depends. Yeah. And so here's what I would suggest, uh, Jenny, you do. I mean, provided that it has enough cash for those out of kind of out of pocket medical expenses, uh, yeah, fixed annuity may actually make a lot of sense in this case. I mean, he's probably being seduced right now with a lot of promises of minimum returns and so forth. Almost most annuities out there are the variable annuities, and they, the, 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 those are the ones that we really try to avoid. A fixed annuity is a true insurance product, and it keeps paying until you die. But there's two key. Uh, 
the one uh, thing that you have to think about is when is what is the overhead cost on them. And you can actually shop around. Uh, there's uh, so Hewler uh, Income Solutions. That's H U E L E R uh, Income Solutions. I have no financial relationship with them, but uh, she's uh, uh, the uh, the head of that has been the show in, in the past. Um, and they have a annuity platform for fixed annuities. It's a little bit cheaper than others. Uh, Vanguard even has the annuity, uh, fixed annuity platform. But you can also just call up, like, you know, different annuity providers like uh, MetLife, uh, a Mass Mutual, and so a TIAA, and say, hey, I want, you know, a fixed annuity, not a variable annuity, a fixed annuity. And then the second, and find out what how much they're willing to give you for a particular uh, a pot of money that you invest in it. And what's nice about it's a steady stream of income. Uh, it doesn't vary with the economy. Um, and it keeps on paying until you die. And the second thing that you have to decide is whether or not it should be what's called joint survival. Um, what happens if he were to die first, will it keep paying um, and provide his spouse is alive? And a joint survival annuity will do that. Um, a single a single annuity uh, that's not joint and survival will not do it. It will stop paying once he, he passes away. So in fact, uh, we strongly recommend joint survival to provide that income protection uh, uh, for both. And so that's what you want to be looking for. So thanks so much, Colin, for joining. And I'll try to sneak one more in before the break. Dave from uh, Pittsburgh, how can we help you, Dave? Hi, guys. I uh, just had a quick question, or oh, two questions. Just bought a house. I got my emergency fund and everything else accounted for. Yeah. $50,000 in cash that I wasn't sure if I was going to need for the house or not. want to know what to do with that, one. Uh, two, I have a, a little bit of an underfunded 403B. It's got about 55000 in it. I'm 32. Um, what would be my best, best route to take with the money? I have a few. I got probably 20000 of student loans left. All at reasonable interest rates. I'm not really. Yeah, what's the highest? What's the highest interest rate in the student loan? Um, six point five, but that one is a low loan. It's probably. All right. Still, uh, we always want to get that's like risk free return. So, uh, Michael, only a minute left here. But uh, in terms of prioritizing this fifty thousand dollars of cash, we always want to make sure it has three to six months of actual expenses set aside. Assuming he still has some more cash on that, and assuming he's getting his full employer match, uh, the the free money. If he still has money left over, a six point five percent risk free return. Would you go for that or have him invest in the market? I would pay that off. Yeah, yeah. That's that. That that is really what you should be focusing on, uh, Dave. Because uh, again, assuming they have a big enough emergency account, three to six months worth of expenses, a little bit you know, closer to six months if you have a pretty uh, risky occupation, uh, you're getting at least the free money, the employer match in the four hundred three b plan that you mentioned. Uh, but if you can get six and a half percent risk free return, you definitely want that because if you're holding any bonds in your in your portfolio. Uh, um, they're not paying 6.5% risk-free. Um, and even though it's 1500 bucks, that's fine. Just pay it off and don't go down to the lowest, uh, to the next lowest one and start working on that one. I would say my break-even number is that anything, it's like 35 to 4%. Uh, you know, uh, if, if that's what your student loan is, your next one after that, I would be working on that. If I could get a 35 to 4% risk-free return, 
I'm taking it uh, because my I have lots of bonds in my portfolio too, and I'm not getting that as a guaranteed return. Uh, and so I would be paying that down. A lot of times people talk about, well, the markets on average pay more than that. Well, that's not adjusting for risk. And if you're holding any bonds at all, that means that this is a better deal for you. So thanks so much for calling, Dave. Really appreciate it. Glad that we could sneak that in. And thanks, Michael, uh, coming back on the show. And you can find out more about Michael Gary and his company at YardleyWealth.net. Again, YardleyWealth.net. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 